Hello, and welcome back to the Product Launch Podcast. My name is Sean Boyce, and the guest I have with me today is Agilos, who is the founder of Growth Sandwich. And today we wanted to talk about the importance of user research. Hello, Agilos. How are you? And thank you for uh, joining us on the show. Hello, Sean. Thank you very much. And thank you for the introduction. You got it. Now, you're joining us all the way over from, uh, let me know again, is it Strasbourg, France? Is that correct? Yeah, I used to live in London for about five years, but recently I decided with my wife to to move to a place where tomatoes taste like tomatoes. So <laughs> we, have, <laughs> we have moved to Strasbourg, France. It's, a, it's an amazing experience, and uh, that's the place I'm actually talking to you. That's excellent. I think we talked about this before too, but I hold a dual passport, so I can come and go throughout the EU. So on my next trip over there, I'll be over there to see you and we can geek out about product. Of course, we can grab a beer if you want. They have excellent beers because it's on the borders with Germany. Now that makes sense and I would definitely take you up on that. So besides thanking you for being here today, I wanted to bring up a topic that we want to discuss, which is uh, the importance of user research. But before we kind of dive into that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about yourself and your background uh, and important, more importantly, can you let our listeners know what Growth Sandwich is and how it came to be? Of course. Uh, Growth Sandwich is uh, my personal consultancy. Um, I basically just stick the brand behind uh, my service. Uh, so I define myself as a growth product manager. And uh, what I'm doing is uh, uh, jobs to be done user research uh, to actually support other product managers or generally product champions mitigate the risk of uh, wrong uh, product decisions. Before that, um, I would say I've managed to become a senior marketer that then switched to product manager. So now I, I have a mixed background between um, half of my years are in marketing and the other half are in uh, product. Uh, in the same time, um, I'm actually teaching uh, so I have had the chance to teach more than uh, 500 marketers and product people in Europe uh, through my educational program. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much uh, who I am. I'm, big, I'm very fond of what you mentioned in, as far as mitigating the risk of wrong product decisions. Certainly I've been there as well myself. That's a lot of the work that we do. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about you from that. And then also on the concept of this overlap between product and marketing, because I feel the two are very closely linked. So hearing distinction from a professional like yourself for our listeners, I think would be helpful too. Yeah, sure. So um, let me start uh, by setting the stage on something. Um, a few years ago, product and marketing were two totally different functions. Uh, the product manager was taking um, the vision, the business requirements, and he or she would uh, make a product that would serve this vision and business requirements. And on the other hand, we would have marketers who would promote uh, this product and would try to bring traffic to that and convert it through the product that the product managers have delivered to them. So nowadays, um, those two lines are pretty much blurred. Product and marketing go hand, to hand in hand. Um, you can say that uh, you do the marketing that is appropriate for your product, but also that you build a product that can actually go to market. So that's what I'm focusing at. Uh, I'm a go-to-market product manager or a growth product manager, and I help uh, other businesses by conducting in-depth user research for them. So regarding the importance of uh, user research, let me 
let me highlight the importance of that uh, with a story. So a couple of uh, years ago, I was working as a contractor, uh, as a marketer, contracting uh, relationship uh, with a business. So this business have hired uh, 10 people in London, really high profile people, uh, product managers, UX people, front end, back end, pretty expensive profiles. Uh, and they also had a small team of uh, developers in Ukraine. So the total cost of uh, sustaining uh, all these people was uh, a little bit less than uh, a million per year. So they wanted to build a product uh, um, just for, the, for, the, for giving some context. The product was um, a website where people would be able to uh, buy properties to let them. So buy to let property investment. So they built their whole product based on an assumption that we should build it like Zoopla. Uh, Zoopla is a really popular property uh, website. In, I think there is one uh, or couple in the US yep. that has a search results. So they built the whole product on this assumption and then they went to market with that and it failed. It failed miserably. So what this company did is they spent almost a million into salaries plus all the marketing expenses that they had on a wrong assumption. And the reason for that was that they didn't study their customer. So they, they took and they made a really wrong product decision that costed them almost a million because they didn't know their customer. So that's what I'm helping at. Uh, I'm helping by conducting deep jobs to be done. And I can explain what is jobs to be done if you want. Uh, research to potential customers of a business to actually uh, deal with problems such as churn, uh, user experience, uh, finding your aha moment and optimizing for it. So I do the research and then I help the company build an evidence-based decision-making loop. So how to take decisions based on evidence and that works in a loop internally, which actually is pretty helpful because it saves money, but also it saves sanity because nine out of 10 uh, startups out there are chaotic. They take decisions based on intuition or uh, based on what an investor said, or based on uh, limited feedback. They don't know how to prioritize feedback. The strongest man on the table pushes uh, his or her decisions. It's a chaotic situation in most cases. And uh, that's what I'm uh, coming in to solve. I solve the chaos, and I also solve uh, um, the business from uh, wrong product decisions. That's excellent. I love the example. and. I often get this question frequently too. It's kind of having an understanding what a product manager, in your case, a growth product manager does. And oftentimes it seems to be easier to understand, right? Sometimes you explain the opposite in order for them to understand the value add there. So your example of things kind of going sideways with a project you work on really highlights the importance of having someone in that role to make those right decisions thing that comes to mind as well for myself is some engagements that I have been involved with have been following people that have been sending the product role down the wrong path and they weren't making what I would say is data-driven decision-making. Um, what you said, which I liked a lot, was evidence-based decision-making loop. That sounds very similar to what I often say in a different way. But unfortunately, the problem with having kind of poor product leadership is you may not know that the damage has been done until it's too late. So in the instance that I'm referring to, this 
product manager that I came in to replace was essentially driving their product in a direction away from the market, which is kind of how you, what you're articulating. And then the, the effects of that are not felt oftentimes until it's too late and you're like, oh, now what do we do? So that's where it's, it's much easier. I think it's even easier to understand how things can go wrong if someone isn't in that role that knows what they're doing. So that's a great example. Um, so my next question for you, of course, is going to be, and I think that's where the listeners' heads are going to be at as well also, is what do we do instead? Can you talk a little bit more about the right process to follow and this you know, evidence-based decision-making that you spoke about? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I would like to add something on what you said. It's not just the cost of uh, the decision itself. It's also the cost of reverting this decision. And on top of that, it's the cost of opportunity. And that's uh, most probably the biggest cost in a startup because uh, startups are, are not businesses that have a big life expectancy. So losing time and money and the limited amount of money that you have in the bank um, might actually as well kill you. Uh, so, yeah, just to answer your question on the right process, um, I'd like to share a couple of more examples on uh, the importance on that, of that, and then uh, I will share the process that I'm following internally. Please. Um, so I had a decision yesterday about Ryanair. Uh, most of us know Ryanair. Ryanair was uh, voted as uh, the worst airline in the world for uh, six years in a row. Um, <laughs> the fun part is that uh, it's uh, one of the highest selling uh, airlines in the world. So what uh, uh, Ryanair is doing is they know their customer. They understand that they do the job that needs to be done for this specific customer. And if the product manager or a high executive of, the team, of, the, of Ryanair would actually try to deal with customer satisfaction, that would mean that he would need to change the value proposition on a direction that would compete with other airlines. And that wouldn't sustain the low prices that they have, so that would get them out of business. So what is important here to SaaS business owners to understand is that their product is not just the features of the product. Every product does lots of different jobs and uh, the jobs to be done framework basically speaks about products that people hire to do a job for them. Uh, I'm actually reading a book at the moment. It's called uh, uh, When Coffee Competes with Kale. And it has a really nice example in it that says that uh, sneakers is actually a, a bar of chocolate that uh, competes directly with Red Bull because we eat it when we want an energy boost. On the other hand, Milky Way is um, a, a, a bar of chocolate that doesn't compete with uh, Snickers because we give it to ourselves as a, as a gift, because we, we believe that uh, we, we deserve a nice treat. So practically speaking, when I work with uh, mainly SaaS founders, what I do is in-depth user interviews that try I try through them to understand uh, what is the timeline of events that led to a purchase or that led to somebody switching from our product to another product? And that is pretty, pretty cool because um, if you ask users why did they cancel their subscription, most of them, they will give you the cliche answers. It's too expensive for me or I don't use it anymore or other. And then they will just type random stuff in order to leave your product because they don't really want to answer that question or they don't know, they, they, they are not aware at this point of time why they stopped 
using your product. But if you try to uncover and unpack the forces that actually led them to do that by start, starting by the first thought, then the event that actually led them to active looking of another solution, then the second event that led them into purchase another solution, and then the feeling of satisfaction or disappointment that they had with the solution, you can actually understand the forces that led them to another product. And in lots of cases, those forces are totally different than what we uh, expect and really important for us to know how to build our product, promote our product, scale our product, do everything with our product. So just to give you practicalities of my uh, process, I let the businesses help me because through to GDPR reasons, I can't do it myself. So I let the businesses help me into uh, setting up meetings uh, with specific customers that are appropriate to uh, answer our questions. I do these interviews with the clients and I try to uncover these forces and also give answer to the questions that the business wants to have an answer at. Then as soon as I do the interviews, I basically organize these insights, um, the forces, the pull forces, the push forces, the forces, the anxieties, uh, and the habits behind um, this purchase, and I give them back to the business. So what the business gets is pretty much why people did what they did. But not just what they think that they did, but what they actually said to me that they did. So they have evidence on why these actions were performed within the product that are not just you know, a short answer into a survey after somebody have churned. So after these uh, businesses take these insights from me, they can either choose to deal with them by themselves or they can either choose to work with me so that we can take these insights and make them experiments. Experiments that are measurable because the user resource is not always measurable. Uh, so experiments that are measurable because they increase revenue. Uh, I'm not trying to optimize metrics such as customer satisfaction or, or NPS because I truly believe that these metrics are biased. But what I'm trying to optimize is revenue. So that's what I'm promising to businesses that I will help you increase revenue through evidence-based uh, decision-making loops. I love it. As you're speaking directly to revenue, I mean, that that's what we're doing when we're building product businesses, right? So that's something I, I try to work into my conversation whenever I'm speaking with someone I'm working with as well so that they're aware, right? The function of what we're building here is to generate revenue and ultimately, you know, value for our customers, but ultimately turns into revenue. A um, number of great points you brought up there in that response that I'd like to draw more attention to for the listeners. Um, the first was, I think Ryanair was a great example, right? Because you gave us two dimensions of data, you know, two lenses to look through when evaluating that company and what they do, right? From one angle, it can look like they're very unsuccessful, but from another angle and you add an, an ulterior perspective to that, all of a sudden you start to see some uh, real progress and capability that, you know, that they have. So I think it's an important point to raise here. I often bring this up in the examples I share with people that want to know more about product when they're working with me as well also. And it's, you mentioned value proposition. I think it's really important to make the distinction that you have to be careful of what the implications are on your decisions regarding your value proposition. Because to me, people don't buy your product, they buy your value proposition. So I think that's what you're saying. And I couldn't agree with it more. 
then if I were to articulate uh, how I have described a similar process to the one that you follow and what I, where I would say there's tremendous value in your approach is that there really is no substitute for interacting with users. So we're talking about user experience here, right? And the level of importance of it when it comes to the success and failures of products. And there's really, you can't, there's no shortcut for that process. You have to talk to people and you have to get, you have to extract that data. It's what you do with that data, which has really all of the, all of the, all of the value and all the power comes in what you do with that data. But I always break it down into two perspectives, right? Because in the beginning, it's trying to uncover the qualitative data. And that, of course, I'm thinking about the categories, right? What categories is this feedback falling into? And then once we have that, you can move forward with capturing and maybe using a couple of different approaches to capture some quantitative data. So you add the volume to that as well, too. So that also talks about two different perspectives. And then that will lead to uh, more powerful data-driven decision-making, or like you're talking about, right? Um, making the decisions with that evidence-based feedback loop. So I think that's a fantastic approach. Uh, of course, I'm a little biased, but <laughs> I love the approach. I think you really, you may not wind up, and you may not wind up where you thought you were going to be, but you're going to have learned a tremendous amount and you're going to have made great progress, which that it's important to, to maintain that perspective as well too when building product businesses, right? Because something I also mentioned is that regarding the problem we're trying to solve, regarding the way we're going about solving it, what we're building into the first versions of our product, these are all largely guesses. So the more data we have behind those, the more we can really understand um, how much progress we've made. The next question I would ask, and I ask this to everybody, of course, because I get asked it all the time. So I love to hear everyone else's perspective. I'd love to get your take on the concept of kind of finding product market fit. So if you could talk about that a little bit as well too, I think that would be great. Yeah. Um... Product market fit is um, and was for lots of years an intangible concept. Um, just to um, just to give a definition is uh, and it's not my definition. Is the time that uh, our business finds a widespread set of customers that actually uh, resonate with our value proposition. Um, but that doesn't really tell us uh, much. Um, when do I have product market fit and when am I losing product market fit? For every business, product market fit is uh, a totally different thing. For example, for uh, a business like uh, Facebook that has a social element, product market fit uh, might mean uh, high engagement uh, and uh, virality. Perhaps I'm just um, uh, shouting out, out ideas now. For a business uh, that sells a specific service, uh, product market fit might be, and um, PS might be. For another business, it might be repeatability, retention. So it really, really depends on what is the nature of your business. And in order for you to understand if you have product market fit, you need to define which are the metrics that actually show value and are connected with revenue. So it's like it's a it's a, it's a concept similar to the north star metric from uh, growth marketing. Yeah, ultimately, when we try to find our north star metric, we need a metric that is connected with value, but also connected with revenue. And we need to optimize. A rough a rough explanation is that, and we need to optimize this metric. So 
the more we optimize that metric, the more it seems we have product market fit. Something I would like to stretch about product market fit because I, had, I have dived a lot into the concept is that lots of people feel, if you ask them, they won't admit it, but that's how they act in reality, that as soon as you find product market fit, you can't lose it. You can lose product market fit in a week. I have seen plenty of founders raising money and losing product market fit after a couple of weeks. And the reason for that, because by the time that they raised money, they thought that now they need to manage more and be uh, less hands-on and more hands-off. Let the product do the job. Not be so self-involved into sales. Step back and be managers instead of salesmen. So every time <laughs> that I'm working with a founder that have raised a significant amount of money to let the product do the job, most of the times I encounter a case of a, of a startup that lost product market fit. So having product market fit doesn't mean that you can't lose it. Um, it really depends both on internal factors and external factors. The only thing I would like to say about product market fit is that you know, metrics don't really matter in that concept. What, matter, what matters more is feelings. So when you have product market fit, you will see people being happy and thanking you for the solution that you have offered them. You will see people um, happily paying you and not really being a pain in your ass to get uh, a small amount of money from them. Uh, you will see people coming back to you, asking you to buy again. So we might find a couple of metrics to actually quantify product market fit, but at the end of the day is the feelings that we have when customers like what we do and they show that with their actions. There are a couple of points that you made there in particular when it came to talking more about product market fit that I wanted to mention as well also. And I think it's that concept of defining metrics, right? So what, what are you measuring and why is that important for your product company, right? Not all metrics are going to be created equal for every company, so that's important to know as well, too. You could be looking at the wrong metrics, or you could be trying to drive traction in the wrong direction, so that's important. I also really like the point you made, and it's, it's one I haven't heard made all that frequently, but it is very important, and that's as quickly as you find product market fit, you could lose it, right? So it's not this like milestone to be achieved, and then it's like game over at that point. And I, I like the way you articulated in the example you gave where after you start to kind of get there, it's easy to see how at that point you might take that as, okay, it's time to shift gears into a different type of company that we're doing. And you're going to, you should not drop out of the routine that you guys have been following, which helped you get there. Right. So the way I'm thinking of it, I'm looking at thinking of ways to kind of phrase it, but I'm, I'm thinking of it in terms of like being wary of the hands off trap, right? You don't want to become hands off at that point. You don't want to stop keeping your ear to the ground and make sure that you're listening to the market and you're capturing that user research because like you said, uh, as quickly as you found it, you can lose it. So excellent points there for sure. Um, Sorry, can I add something on that? Please. Um, I, I really like uh, perceiving product market fit as, uh, as the cycle of life because when we start uh, a business, um, we are really hands-on. We, we speak with every customer. We are really passionate to to deliver the best experience. And we sometimes also feel a little bit uh, not so confident. So we are really into the product and the delivery of the product. But when we raise money, we become uh, more confident about that. And the aim of raising money is to scale. So scale, most of the times, comes with 
drop in quality because we want to automate things that before we couldn't automate. So the more automation, the less quality. That's, that's a universal law. Uh, every business that actually managed to keep quality as high as possible, despite the fact that they automated their processes, uh, I mean, please let me know what's this business. I want to study it. So the more we automate, the more we might lose product market fit. It's, it's, a, it's a standard thing. It's repeatable. Um, and uh, we need to be extremely careful when we raise money because raising money and trying to automate things that gave us product market fit, such as being really into the delivery and speaking with the customers and providing a good customer care and replying to emails really fast, these might be the reasons that gave us product market fit for a long time. So automating all these processes and putting people that are really cold or indifferent or machines do that jobs for us, it might actually make us lose the product market fit. So what I want to stretch here is that the transition from do everything manually and hustling to automating things is the most dangerous um, place that a business can lose product market fit. And I definitely um, need to say to businesses that will uh, hear us and founders, watch. Just be careful during that transition. It's really dangerous. Really good point. And it speaks to the same, it really drives home that same point we were discussing previously in that I could see myself falling into that trap, obviously, because I, I love the concept of automation and efficiency. But you're right, it becomes dangerous. And I hear about these cases from time to time, too. Even for people that consider themselves to be product managers, they may be working in like corporate or enterprise level companies, but they never talk to the customer. And I've heard about experiments really going sideways in that situation because what they think they know is very different from what they really should know. And when they finally do get to the customer, they levels of expectations are so far removed from one another that whatever they ultimately worked on and delivered isn't anywhere near close to solving problem, real problems for real customers. So good point. Uh, I like the hesitation and the advanced preparation that should be involved when doing things like raising money and automating and all those kind of things. You need to make sure you have the right processes in place. You're still capturing that great data to ensure that you know, you're still on the right track. Having said that, what I'd love to hear more about from you at this point, uh, given all of your experience and your background, is what kind of resources would you share with our listeners here in the product world? They can be books, uh, blogs, other podcasts, whatever they may be. Uh, you mentioned one previously, so I think that one's certainly worth mentioning again. But uh, anything, in it, please reiterate that one and then anything else you would recommend uh, in this realm as well also. Yeah, sure. Um, a book that I really like is uh, When Coffee Competes with Caleb by Alan Clement. Uh, it's a book that ultimately speaks about jobs to be done. Um, another really good book um, is uh, Positioning by Al Rice. And it might be a little bit old and might use uh, pretty old examples by businesses that uh, are dead at the moment. But um, it highlights um, concepts that are really fresh uh, even now. And the last book that uh, I think that every product person or anyone that launches a product, any SaaS founder, any product founder, and everyone <laughs> should have is a Design Sprint uh, by Jack Knapp. Um, in my point of view, Design Sprint is, uh, need to be taught in uh, universities. It's the ultimate book on how to prototype and test an idea in five days. And everybody should check it and, uh, and read it. 
Now, uh, these are books. Um, I would say that I really like, um, I really like two summits. Uh, one is uh, the Product-Led Growth Summit by Wes Bush. Uh, he has found 50 people speaking about product-led practices. And um, if it's not too lame, I would like to say about the summit that we are launching in the next few days. It's called Product Qualified Summit. Yeah, we focus more on strictly product things and less marketing things. I have uh, managed to to speak with uh, CEOs and VPs from the top, top tech companies. I'm pretty sure you will find some interesting uh, speeches there. Uh, what else? What else? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Then there are there are other resources that I would uh, suggest, but they are scattered. You know, a blog post here, a blog post there. Uh, I think these books will give enough food for thought for a long time. Definitely. I know I have one that I would recommend as well also, and that's uh, the Growth Sandwich blog. <laughs> I read one of your blog articles last week, and it was on product-led growth. I did an excellent job of defining what it is, number one, because it's still kind of a relatively new concept. Doing that work may not be new, but referring to it as such product-led growth or PLG, as you'll see it out and across the web, is relatively new. So I think it did a great job of describing what it is and then whether or not it's right for you, I think was another really good, important point as well. Also, of course, with um, some provided examples. So with your permission, I'd include a link like that uh, in our show notes as well, too. Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, another blog that is extremely good is uh, OpenView's blog. OpenView is, uh, is a pretty well-known SaaS. They speak about product-led practices specifically, and uh, it's like the place that you need to write uh, if you want to be in the map. So the best ideas, the best theory is there. Um, some articles are, are a little bit difficult to, re to be read because they're really scientific, uh, but definitely it's a, <laughs> it's a blog that um, you need to visit and you need to follow. Agreed. Another great example. They're fantastic. I, in, someone mentioned them, so I, I shared... I created, a, I created videos as well, too, for marketing purposes, and I talked about product-led growth. I think I alluded to your blog, and then someone also mentioned in the comments, OpenView. Tagged them, and then I responded and said, had great things to say about them as well, too, and they came through and they liked the comments, which I thought was cool, <laughs> which is relatively unique when I tagged companies, especially on LinkedIn. All right, uh, excellent resources. I'll include links to all those, including your blog and stuff like that. Um, in the, the, the show notes, and then I'll get more information from you about the summit. So that will be on there as well. Also, last question I have for you is uh, who should reach out and how can they get in touch with you? And mainly SaaS founders, product founders, product managers, or UX people, all of them are on product, you know, that uh, face a specific problem internally, such as churn or uh, activation issues or uh, low customer satisfaction and they want to understand why and how to fix it. Um, and ideally, businesses that uh, you know, are not running out of time, because if they run out of time, because they have, if they have built a monstrous product that uh, cannot be reverted, I mean, I'm not coming to revert every product decision in, but it's always good if uh, we have some space to, you know, to apply new things that uh, the business might have missed. Uh, so these are typically the people that um, enjoy my service more. Excellent. And how can they get in touch with you? They can uh, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my name on LinkedIn is Agelos M. Uh, I don't really use my surname because it's pretty difficult. 
but they can also visit uh, my website and uh, speak to me in the chat. But I definitely prefer, prefer if you speak to me in LinkedIn. <laughs> it's, uh, it's more personal and it's just me. It's, there, there's no big company with 20 people behind me. It's just me everywhere. So it's always better if you speak to me in a social medium. Excellent. So you heard it here, folks. You're going to speak with the expert himself. LinkedIn's the uh, platform of choice. I'll include links for that stuff in there as well also. So that's what I have today. Uh, Agalos, thanks so much for being here and sharing your stories. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Product Launch Podcast powered by Next Step. If you're looking for help with your product business in the area of product strategy or product management, please feel free to reach out to Next Step to learn more about how we can help at hello at nextstep.io. That's hello at nxtstep.io. Additionally, if you know anyone who has experience building, running, or managing a product or product business and would like to be a guest on our show to share their story, please have them reach out to our organizer at podcast at nextstep.io. That's podcast at nxtstep.io. Thanks and keep disrupting. Hey folks, Sean here, and thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you got a ton of value out of it. If you did, I'd encourage you to also sign up for my free five-day email course about launching a profitable B2B SaaS application for less than $750. If you'd like to sign up for that course, you can do so at nextstep.io forward slash B2B SaaS.